0: this is Sister Prince and today is September fourteenth, 1987 and I'm interviewing Charles White on his uh, experiences as a Tuskegee Airman we're going to deal primarily with the 40s and 50s but we know that we have other things to talk about also right. so we're not going <coughs> to hold it to that but
1: the 40s uh
0: let me ex- let yeah. me just explain what i what i want from from you mm-hmm. i want your experiences because only you know what they are right and your impressions and your feelings i'm asking a lot you know, that's right <laughs> <laughs> but
1: we'll try you know
0: and uh what it was like for you to be that how you got to be that way uh, And uh, what it was like before, and what it was like during, and what it was like after. As pertains to uh, not only being an airman, but also when you left St. Louis and and when you came back. And what it meant in your life. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You you've just shown me a whole bunch of pictures here, which just look fascinating. No
1: shortage of of photographs. I think we were aware of importance of what we were doing so we at least I did I photographed it well you know I have just lots of photographs albums you know all
0: right I'll, I'll start up by asking you how did you become aware and why because some people were aware of the importance of it and some people weren't
1: well as uh, a student of uh, I was going, a college student, I was going to Stowe Teachers College, and uh, we got word through the grapevine. I, I really don't remember exactly how I heard that they were testing. Uh, they were going to have uh, tests down at the City Hall or uh, the Municipal court Building for pilot training. What year was this? This was 1940 or 43, 42 because I went in in 43, but if you can just envision uh, being a student uh, growing up in St. Louis as a black youngster
0: I can't envision it you want want to tell me a little bit about it
1: well, uh, St. Louis was like uh, most southern cities Uh, it was completely segregated well, I won't say completely because that, that means that uh, on every hand it was segregated. There was one area that I think was important that uh, has a bearing on the way people feel as they grow up. The transportation system was not segregated. You didn't have to ride the back of the bus or the back of the streetcar. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, blacks lived in their little enclaves in North St. Louis and in the downtown area, the so-called downtown area, east of Grand. And uh, whites lived all around you, everywhere else. West St. Louis, South St. Louis, North St. Louis, and you had your little enclave. And... Uh, and it just seemed like that's the way it was supposed to be. You know, that was the way it was. And nobody much questioned it as far as I'm concerned. I, as a youngster, we didn't question it. You, you were with your friends and your family in your own neighborhood. So uh, there didn't seem to be too much wrong with that. You had very little contact with whites. The only contact you had might be with the, uh, the person that owned the little store on the corner where you got credit he would give you credit because this was during the depression nobody had money uh, food was dirt cheap but of course uh if you didn't have that little money then of course uh it was very important that you you get a loaf of bread which was a nickel say i think you get a loaf of bread for a nickel but if you didn't have the nickel it was still hard uh, but uh you didn't see whites, I think I saw, uh, and then he just became one in the neighborhood, you know. And uh, then the police, you had the white policemen, and they were kind of fatherly, most of the ones in our neighborhood. And once a year you would go to the Vale Proper parade <laughs> and you just see just lots of whites, you know, and th- that seemed to be okay too nobody bothered anybody. We would go walk all the way across uh, Pendleton Avenue, Sarah Street, to Olive, and we'd watch the parade between uh Vanna Van and Olive. There was a hill, right, and there was a theater, I recall. All that's nothing now. It's all been torn down. But we'd watch the parade, and uh, there seemed to be nothing wrong with the fact that uh, there were no blacks included, except the guys uh, taking care of the horses. I think uh, they had horses then, and and uh, they'd have the reins of these big, beautiful horses. Uh, lead them down the street.
0: What year were you born?
1: 1921. Okay. Okay, so uh, you knew your place, so to speak. Uh, we came back to our area from the Vale proper grade, uh, and until the next year, but you just didn't see whites. You saw blacks. You went to school with blacks. Your teachers were all black, and uh, that just seemed to be the way it was. Now we uh, went to St. We were Lutherans, and you had a white pastor, and, uh, and that seemed okay. But I found later as I grew up that this was a missionary type church. This was uh, the missionary, St. Philip's Missionary Lutheran Church. And uh, by that time I was aware of you know this racial thing. You know? And so as a consequence, when I got out of the service, I never went back to that church. You know? And uh, I can't say I go to churches, you know.
0: When did you become aware of this racial thing?
1: Well, uh, I was I I was aware, but not acutely aware as I was growing up. It
0: didn't affect your life. But
1: it didn't affect my life when, or or my feelings.
0: When did it start?
1: When I took the examination for uh, the Air Corps. Uh, then the momentum began to pick up. Although. Uh, my personal experiences weren't that bad, not enough to change your personality or anything. Uh, other, other fellas from farther north probably had a, a more difficult time adjusting to this because being from St. Louis, I understood how to uh, adapt to this type thing that we were going into. Uh, somehow you just do. If you come from a place where you know that you don't go to white theaters, you don't go to white restaurants, and uh, hotels, you know, you had your own hotels, your own restaurants, your own movies. So someone from a barter state like St. Louis could make it better than somebody from New York or Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, where they had all these privileges there And then when they went south for training, then all these were taken away. You know, they went through shock.
0: It's interesting that you you call them privileges instead of rights.
1: Or let's say rights. Yeah, I think that's a better, that's a better... Well, with us, you you can understand, Right. it seems like uh, almost a privilege that made you feel.
0: That's why I brought
1: it up. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's get back to... uh, taking the test.
0: Did you go down with friends? Mm -hmm. Did you go down with some friends? No,
1: I just took off from class. I cut classes.
0: What appealed to you about it?
1: Well, uh, okay, I haven't really given you enough of my background. I come from a middle-class background. Although we were poor, my father was a doctor and my mother was a product of finishing school which was a little unusual in those days, okay. So we had all the traditional values of of any middle-class group. Uh, our aspirations uh, were the same. You learn to be honest and to be, you know, all the, the values of cleanliness and uh, saving money and the value of money and the value of work, we had all that. So I grew up, Uh, reading quite a bit I guess you could call me a bookworm I read and it had to do with adventure I was into adventure stories my heroes see now there's another thing blacks I didn't see anything wrong at that time with the fact that all my heroes were white you know I I was reading about Kit Carson and and Jim Boy and, and you know the settlement of the west and and then the, the Heroes of World War One, The Pilots, and used to have a lot of pulp magazines.
0: Mm-hmm, right.
1: And uh, you could- Comic uh, books. Uh, yeah, like, well, these weren't comic books. These were uh, like Argosy. They had adventure stories in in them. And uh, they had uh, one I remember, G8 and his Battle Aces, and Bill Barnes. And, and I read about these uh, brave pilots and, and then I was into uh, the into history, you know, like uh, the French Revolution and and uh, a lot of uh, English and French history, the adventure part of it, uh, where you had the Three Musketeers and and uh, I read about them. In fact, uh, later as I grew up in my teens, I bought foils, you know, and we oh. would. Uh, in my, in our little, Duel? Uh, yeah, yeah, we would. I had helmet and all, and and uh, I played tennis. We had tennis courts not too far away. So I did all the things: archery, very unusual.
0: Where did you go to school?
1: Uh, well, I went to Simmons Grade School, uh, and then went to Sumner High School, and then to Stowe Teachers College. Were you in the Ville? That you were in, the ville in the Ville. Eldersville, I guess that's what it started out to be. And uh, evidently, there were not too many youngsters uh, doing that sort of thing, but my friends were doing that, the guys that, that I went around with. And we used to fence, and we boxed. And we had boxing gloves and played cowboy and Indians, you know, and all the, all the things that you do as, as kids. And uh, we would also venture off into... Uh, white areas and we would skate. They, they would have nice hills and, and it was white beyond Taylor, west of Taylor, it was all white. So we would go over a little farther north on our skates and they had a hill from <laughs> Taylor down to uh, Cora. And we'd go and top of the hill and skate down and you know, after we got tired of that and nobody came out and said anything. Uh, nobody was concerned, so the races got along fine. Nobody was harsh, or hostile. It was that was just the way it was. So uh, everybody, in other words, everybody knew his place. And uh, so let's, so there, therefore, I grew up with uh, this daring dude. With dreams, with, yeah, dreams. with dreams and fantasies of knights in shining armor, Sir Lancelot, and the Holy Grail, and you know, all that yes. round table. So, you, I you guess were I exposed, just, yeah, you exposed to, to all that. I know my mother still has a copy of the Chronicle mm-hmm. of Charles V that mm-hmm. she's going to give to me when she passes on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She's it's in kind of bad shape, but she's got a uh, ribbon around it. She's going to leave that as part of her her heritage, I guess, or part of her will. But anyway, that was uh, the way I came up. So it was just naturally natural that when I found out that you could you'd be able to fly, then I went to take the test. Yeah, I'm
0: glad you told
1: me that. Yeah, so I uh, went down, I think we had to uh, apply and then they called, sent us a letter saying that such and such a day the test would be given. And I went alone. I was the only one in, in the whole bunch of guys at Stowe that chose to take the test. And just went between glasses. No preparation at all. And I still, you know, I, I have a feeling that when you go to all the, these all-black uh, schools, uh, there's got to be something lacking, you know, in, in your training. But I think maybe the fact that I did so much reading, I mean, it kind of made up for it. But I I took the test, I gave the mental first all morning. And, you know, you open it up and you see things that, you never seen before, you know. But uh, uh, when uh, the afternoon came and and they read off the ones that had passed, uh, let's first say that there were 150 guys and 149 whites and one black in the taking the test.
0: Oh, yeah. You
1: know, this was not just uh, very common. I I guess I they didn't even expect me to be down there.
0: Oh, for some reason I was, okay. Yeah. I, I assumed that this was, they had asked for, uh, this was for Tuskegee no, and they had asked for no. black. Oh, this was just the air, okay.
1: Yeah, oh, air cool. Okay. So there you were. Yeah, so there I was. And I was still there for the af- for the physical, uh-huh. and there were 50 of us left, because that mental <laughs> metal test that
0: Wipes, weeded, wiped them off. <laughs> Weeded out
1: <laughs> all, all the, the, the hundred others. And the guy put us through, you know, and they can be very humiliating, you know. You yeah. know they probe and, and look in your mouth, your teeth, and all that. And uh, I think when it was all over, I, I recall the first test they gave you was a color blindness test. And they, op- this guy opened the book, and evidently they had little colored dots. I don't know if you've taken that. Mm-hmm. And there's a number there somewhere. Yeah, but if you if you, if you're colorblind, you colorblind, there's just a blank page, or you just see dots. dots. So uh, he opened the. This guy, this white guy, was there sitting in front of the doctor. Doctor opened the book. What's that number? And he said. What number? He said, put your clothes on. <laughs> go home. Go home. But anyway, you know, I was not colorblind, so I passed that test, and I passed all the rest. So there I was, it must have been about 10 or 15 guys, you know, uh, left out of that 150. So the whites all got their assignment. They were to go to, I don't know it was Jefferson Barracks at a certain date, a date on a certain date, or... I said, "What's another? Uh, well, some army installation, uh, close by." But when they got to me, uh, they said, "Well, uh, Charles, <laughs> said, uh, don't, don't call. It's like don't call us. We'll call you. Uh, we'll be in touch." They said, and so I went on back to class. I went back to class and. I got the feeling that uh, it would be a long time before I might be called, and to the extent that I made all kind of plans, because by this time, uh, many of the other fellows had been drafted. They t- went through these colleges and, and, and cleaned them out, all males over, what, 19, 18, 19. And uh, so I was one of the few left. And before that, I had been 3A because I, I was taking care of my family, my mother and three, three children.
0: Did uh,
1: your mother know you were going to go do this? Uh, no, I don't know whether I told her or not. I didn't tell her, no. Because I was a man of the family, you see. My father had been gone for since I was nine. Uh, incidentally, we we'll would say, I told you he was a, a doctor, a dentist. Mm-hmm. But in those days people weren't, didn't have the money to get their teeth fixed. So he didn't do too well because uh, uh, people didn't come and uh, he became distraught. He had four children and a wife and uh, I guess he was pretty spoiled because his mother, you know, worked, I guess, all kinds, did all kind of work to send him to school but mm-hmm. Harry down in Nashville. Oh
0: my, then he couldn't.
1: Yeah, then he work. couldn't make it. So he left us and went home to his mother. Usually it's a woman that goes home to her mother. He went home to his mother and left us, uh, but not without resources. My grandfather had, uh, was working in private family for a family called, I think they were the Metham family, George S. Metham. And evidently he had put away a lot of money with this lady, uh, with his madam. Uh, just in case uh, this happened, so uh, when my father left, this lady uh, dole would dole out money to us to you know for our rent and our light, gas, and so forth. So my mother didn't have to work; she stayed home and raised us, and uh, she doled this money out until. She said she was going to do that until I graduated from high school, and so she did, true to her word. I still think some of that money was left, but anyway, sure. Yeah, but anyway, she did. But
0: this was your grandfather that had worked.
1: Had worked. With your uh, mother's Westminster, father. Your my your mother's father. Your mother's father. Yeah. And I don't know whether I want to take. Uh, this is interesting, though. This man. Charles.
0: Uh, Say anything you want,
1: because I can come yeah, back. Yeah, you, can, you can, come can come back. I can come back. Because yeah. this good. is interesting. Yeah. This, uh, this man worked for, first he worked for, and I can't think of, Mr. Wright lived in the same house. Uh, and he was a valet, my father, my grandfather. And he had, he had all the, you know, all the mannerisms of his master, you know. Mm-hmm. When they went out, went to church. Well, so Charlie went to church with his, his swallowtail coat with his, you know, Mr. Wright would have his, mm-hmm. and uh, my grandfather would have his. So he adapted all these uh, ways and mannerisms, you know, and, and that was the way his head was screwed on, you know. And I guess he passed that right along because uh, they had a, a big library in this big mansion on Westminster, and my mother would, Uh, had a pick of any of the books that that she wanted and uh, when we came along by that time the methans had taken over this mansion and all the help and uh, so he was working there and uh, we would go over and uh, never will forget uh, we always had to go in the back door naturally we went in the back door and when the madam came in we'd all have to They all the help you know the maid and the butler and -hmm. and, uh, and anybody else that was back in the kitchen would would stand up and she would come. She's a kind of short lady. They were very wealthy, but they were doing their good works, you know. Mm -hmm. And they were. They give us Life magazines and Times magazines so that we could read and know what was going on. And uh, I never will forget. I was so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. We got tired of lugging my brother, and I got tired of lugging these these uh, books uh, home all the way across from Westminster all the way into the Ville. So we decided we were gonna ditch them in, in an alley. <laughs> and do you know somebody saw the you know the sticker
0: yeah. address
1: yep. and took those magazines back <laughs> over well, there what they West? Do? Well, they just. Uh, Told us how uh, how ashamed they were that we did this sort Ms. of thing. Was Matham or Yeah, your uh-huh. yeah, was Matham gave us a lecture mm-hmm. on honesty and and all that. <laughs>
0: Probably didn't hurt you, as kid. <laughs> Not at all. No,
1: it was. It taught me a lesson. That was mm-hmm. just one of the lessons uh, that you learn along the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that
1: to <sighs> But anyway. Uh, Here I am, I've taken the test, i passed the test Mm -hmm. for the Air Corps. Meanwhile, I have some feeling that uh, they only had one place. We heard it was Tuskegee, Alabama, and there were a lot of guys on the list, and it might be a year or two before they got to you. So here I am, and uh, with all these pretty girls at Stowe Teachers College, and I'm one of the few males around. I had all kind of grandiose plans, you know, <laughs> how I was going to make this pay off. And about a couple of weeks later, I got this long white envelope with Pullman tickets and all kind of uh, military orders that I was to report to Biloxi, Mississippi. Now, you know, that wasn't it wasn't part of the plan, because I'd never heard of Biloxi, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I got a map.
0: I think Keeser Field is-,
1: is... Right outside of Biloxi. But it's an airfield. Yeah. But see, I'm thinking uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, And it, just the thought of going down to Alabama was traumatic as far as I was concerned. Because? Because I'd only uh, been as far south as Nashville.
0: Because you were leaving home
1: or because it was the south? Because it was the south. You know, that was a place. Afraid, afraid of it? Sure. You suppose, you know, all the lynchings that were taking place down there. That was uh, no man's land from, you know, from my point of view, because there were some terrible things going on in the South at that time, Forties, 40s, uh, and the 30s, you know, all kinds of things yes. you would read, and it just had a reputation, which you know, we knew about, because in spite, of, like I said, in spite of the fact that uh, this is a barter state, Missouri, it's just not as bad, mm-hmm. and St. Louis is kind of an oasis in this Missouri desert, really.
0: You needed that shield and your uh, sword. (laughs) Right.
1: But anyway, we got uh, my mother and godmother and saw me off at the Union Station. That was when the Union Station was in its Mm. glory, you know, with I don't know how many tracks, 20 or 30 tracks Mm. leading out. And uh, my mother never questioned, you know, that that I would do this. Uh, She just encouraged me. When I was building model airplanes, you know, I used to build model airplanes. She would let me hang them from the living room ceiling, you know. I'd have planes all around. So she always encouraged me in these kinds of things. So uh, I left and, of course, uh, I had the money, my money sent, sent home. Mm -hmm. And she took care of it, took good care of it. They used what they needed. And then I heard that uh, my brother had gone to California uh, to work in the shipyard, so they decided they would go out uh, to California, to Oakland, and work. So my sister and, and the brother that was left and uh, my mother went out there. And they, While I was doing my thing over, overseas, they were doing theirs in the shipyard, the Navy Yard. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in the meanwhile, she was putting away the money, or at least part of it, that I was sending home. And that's where I got my start when I, when I got out of the service. She put it away for you. Yeah. She I, sounds
0: like she was a very special woman.
1: She, I think she still is. She still she is. Still, mm-hmm. She's still. Uh, she's getting a little forgetful. My sister calls and says that she, her mind is, cause she's, mine is, because she's 90 something now. Mm. 90. She was, just turned 90.
0: She's allowed to be forgetful again. Yeah, <laughs> I think it, but I'm forgetful now.
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, that was the first. You know, when they said that, that we would uh, call you, after they told the other guys where to go, that was the first indication that it was not going to all be sweetness and light, you know. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't too bad because they did call me and they and we went, uh, got on a Pullman uh, train and we heard that at a certain point, I think Evansville. You you have to change. You had to change trains. That was the rule, the Jim Crow rule. You had to change your car, whatever car you were in. You'd have to change when you got to Evansville, Indiana. But uh, we, we never heard about that. We kept the shades down. Well,
0: you with, You were with other. Yeah,
1: we met some other guys. Should
0: I refer to them in those days? Should I refer to you as colored, Negro, black? What would you prefer?
1: Well, I guess you might as well use the modern terminology. I kind of gravitate between all of them, that's because of my age, you know. I've, I've had to go through all the designations, but black is all right. Is whatever What yes. well,
0: were you with other blacks at the yeah.
1: time? Okay. Yeah, I met two from uh, uh, New York and one from Chicago, because evidently they caught the train. And, and
0: met at Union yeah, Station.
1: Yeah, and we met at Union Station, okay. and about four of us. Uh, went down, so I began to uh, meet new friends, and these are very exceptional guys uh, because, they were exceptional because they came from a freer part of the country, and I think their education is somewhat better. But anyway, uh, we got, we rode down with a lot of trepidation about going south, and not knowing about Biloxi, but we, we got off, and uh, they, they
0: never, had. They never
1: made you change. No, we didn't have to change. We had we had a Pullman car, and uh, which we stayed in most of the time. <laughs> and uh, we got, got down there. and Of course, we peeped out, and you, we saw characters that, uh, at the stations along the way that really bore out our, our worst fears. You know, I mean, they the looks of. You know the, the overalls and the and the straw, big straw hats and and uh, the uh, they they have a certain the look rednecks. about them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they have a certain look about them, and uh, we didn't want any part of them. And you were how old? I was, I guess I was twenty. I guess twenty, twenty-one. I think twenty. Let's see, this was 40, 43, so. 20, maybe 22. Yeah, I was born in 21. Yeah, about 22 again, so fully grown, but hadn't been very far.
0: Sheltered.
1: Very sheltered. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee was as far south as I had been, and down there, they kind of lived in fear. Uh, my father's family owned their home, and uh, they wouldn't let us skate out on the street. You might bump into a white person. They might come and burn our house down. You know, they—that's the feeling I got uh, there, and uh, so I mean that colored the, the way I thought of the South, I suppose. But then anyway, we got down to Biloxi, and uh, the first guy, guy I saw when I on this truck—we were on a truck—and a guy yelled up, "Anybody from St. Louis?" And this was this Reddick. Uh, Captain, he that became Captain Reddick. Uh, uh, police. He was a boxer, a, a black boxer in St. Louis, and he was uh, at that time he was a sergeant down in. Uh, Start winding. He was
0: a sergeant. Okay.
1: All right. Uh, uh, he was a sergeant in the army, and uh, he kind of. Uh, adopted me uh, as a fellow of St. Louis and and kind of taught me the ropes. Now, we weren't at Kiesel Field too too long. We were there long enough to take another test. We didn't know what the test was for. And when I looked at it, uh, it was, might say, it was Greek to me. You know, all kind of physics questions and all kinds of things you know how you have these visuals you have the the cogs, and if this wheel turns this way and this one turns then which way will uh, uh, wheel C turn you know all those kinds of things Uh, but I passed that I was in the I was number 25 out of about 100 they had gathered about 110 uh, young men from all over the United States to start in this this, new pro- this was a new project to get all of us off, that had taken the test off the streets. It was called uh, college training detachment that they were going to establish at Tuskegee. So you were given the test in order to determine in which order you went into flight training. We didn't know that at the time. But uh, since they uh, took 50 in at a time, in the flight training, I was in the first, the first class of that group to go into flight training. They had been training a few blacks up to that point, you know, and some of them had graduated. I think it started in, according to this book, forty-one or forty-two, uh, and we're talking about March. I went in March uh, forty-three, and that was kind of lucky because the war was moving along and they needed more pilots. I suspect they had a quota system for blacks because they didn't have a great need for too many black pilots.
0: According to the book they did.
1: Uh, So my going in uh, at the time I did uh, kind of gave me a better chance to graduate because they had a greater need for, for pilots. So my training was rather uneventful. I started in uh, in that first class of this college training detachment after we got to Tuskegee. We spent about a month or so before we went into went to the airbase, but I was one of the first to go in that first 50. And uh, you go into pre-flight and then you get all the ground school training and whatnot. And then you go in the primary where you fly a two-wing plane. That was one of those old-fashioned steerman, uh planes that they still use for crop dusting. Uh, you see them every now and then mm-hmm. on TV mm-hmm. uh, to dust crops. And that was our primary training plane. And then uh, I completed that satisfactorily. In fact, I was the second one to solo in my class. And uh, we, uh, one day after we had flown and shot a few landings, the, my instructor reached up, there were two hand on the wing, pulled himself out and said, you got it. And that was, you know, that was the magic moment. You're going to be in this plane by, by yourself. And all your classmates, they hadn't soloed yet, and they're way over. Uh, near the buildings and they're watching to see what what's happening
0: what's uh, happening to Charles
1: Blake well, that's right so the I the idea of the solo your instructor gets out and stands by the wind team you have to taxi on back downwind to the head now this is just like a, a field it's it's there's no pavement or anything it's like a cow pasture flat and level you go all the way back to the end and then you turn the plane around and then you hold your breath and then you push that throttle forward and that little plane starts bumping down the field faster and faster and faster till finally she gets up enough speed and you pull back on the stick and you airborne. Okay. And the idea is to go up, make a 90 degree turn to the left, then make another 90 degree turn another 90 degree turn and cut your engines and glide back in for a landing. And that's your solo flight. And you do all that and you, as you come down, you have to judge, you you gotta have good, you can't see over the the nose of the plane. You have to kind of look, use your peripheral split vision. And when the time is just right, ease up, on, on the stick, pull back, and she slows down and she just drops right in. And
0: did she?
1: And she did. Oh, wow. Because, <laughs> you see, some of the guys didn't get that far because some of them would start leveling off, say, at 10 feet or second yeah. story level, or some of them would almost go into the ground. Mm-hmm. You see, then the instructor would take over before they both were killed. <laughs> And they would promptly wash those guys out, and then anybody that had a ground loop or scraped the wing, or anything, they were automatically ground they didn't uh, get washed too
0: many out. Chances?
1: No, because they they needed to get rid of guys because they they start off with fifty and say they didn't need but seven or they didn't need for three. Yeah, you gotta uh, do it At right. the end, yeah. you couldn't make any mistake.
0: How'd you feel?
1: Well, you know, see, with me, I'm kind of a I was always kind of a cocky guy. It it felt perfectly natural, you know. Uh, And yet, I would reflect from time to time while I was flying. I would even resort to turning the rearview mirror, you know, so I could see myself. How
0: you (laughs) look?
1: Yeah. What are you doing up here? You know, because it was totally out of character with anything that most blacks experience, or most people, it's not just blacks. I mean, how many guys get a chance to fly aircraft? You know.
0: When when you said it felt natural, it seems to me that you've always been an achiever. I suppose so. And always obviously been at the head of your class or close to it. So that completing this and doing it well is that is that what you meant that's what i mean that's what i
1: meant yeah i mean i i felt that uh i was in my element because as i say i was into aviation you know before interested in it uh i designed uh model airplanes i didn't mention uh years ago there was a jimmy allen show on uh, the radio show they had They had a model airplane race at Lambert Field. Not a race, but a contest, I guess. And they gave prizes. I was one of the few blacks that entered the airplane and that's when I was, I guess I was about 12 or 13 years old. And you know, just no blacks at all, but you were treated very well. You know, you you came and you brought your little aircraft. And uh, I had one of these little Light planes and it flew around one of the big hangars out there. Didn't win the prize, didn't fly long enough, but at least I had the experience of of doing that. Mm -hmm. So I was in aviation, and I, and like I say, I felt very comfortable in that plane. Like I was, that was uh, destiny. You know, that's what I was Mm -hmm. supposed to be doing. (laughs) And so you
0: just didn't have one of those white scarves on. Oh yeah, we
1: we we had. That's what I'm saying, the, the pictures and everything. Uh, we knew that this was important, <laughs> and and I had the, the yellow gloves. Oh, you really worked shab- gloves. <laughs> and uh, you see some pictures. We we went through it, and we even uh, after we graduated, I haven't quite gotten to that. But in order to get to it, let's mm-hmm. just say that it went along from from uh, one. Uh, Plane to the next. You, each plane became more complex than the one before, till finally you were ready for uh, the last plane. That was the next plane before the fighter. Uh, that was an AT-6. They called it low-wing monoplane. And in order to graduate, you had to go to uh, Eglin Field. that Florida? Eglin Field, Florida. And you had to have uh, Practice gunnery out over the ocean, and
0: but you were still
1: a cadet kept
0: as a black unit.
1: This all this is all black except for your instructors. Uh-huh. Your instructors, you uh, and I didn't uh, mention it. It was like West Point or like the academy they have in Colorado Springs. Hazing, you know, all that we talked about hazing before, but we want to get this on this tape. You had to go through tremendous hazing from your upperclassmen and that was kind of find out whether you could take uh, abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse because you got all of it. You had to duck walk, are you aware of what duck walking is?
0: Squat. Squat
1: and walk, squat with your hands on your hips mm-hmm. and you, until they said stop. They may go and have a sandwich somewhere, and tell you to just keep duck walking until I come back, and then you had to clean their, scrub their rooms up uh, for inspection for Saturday, and then and then you had to go and get your own. All these kind of humiliating things that you had to do, but that was to shape and mold your character. The Army believes in this. The Marines believe it. I do I have. Sometimes I had my doubts, but then I I don't know. Maybe uh, we've been successful up to this point. So uh, we went through all that, and then you know, we became upperclassmen, and then we meted out some of that to the lower because you always had a class coming in. So if you could make it past that first five weeks, then you had someone to shape up and mold And meanwhile, of course, your up class were molding you all the while. So, we get to graduation. They did other things. I want to cut off your hair, your mustache that you were so proud of. And they humbled you. You were lowly, called you a lowly worm. Mm -hmm. And uh, then as you, evidently that's supposed to do something to your character, Uh, if they, Make you feel low, and they humiliate you. The, even the the instructors would uh, call you all kind of nice. And I'm not really talking about the whites. I can't say the whites uh, called me. Well, they might have called me by some of the uh, pet terms. They had no racial connotations. If you let the nose you know, you're looking around and you don't have the plane trimmed correctly, the nose would go down. It's important for a pilot to realize that you never let your the nose of the plane stray downward. So he would yell, you know, and use all kind of profanity. Yeah. Well he's not a to That's he right. This is That's right. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't want you to die when you became uh pilot in the plane right. by yourself. Uh, so they were very harsh but I consider them fair. Uh, I can't say that I got any unusual treatment, but the idea was to form an all-black unit and for this unit to fight somewhere. They didn't know where we were gonna fight because nobody wanted uh, us to fight with them. That was against the law, anyway.
0: I have to stop you. Yeah to stop you and ask you. Um, I, I threw the question at you over the phone to give you an idea of what I might be asking, but here you are with all these exceptional young men. Right. Uh, you're down there doing this training, and you're in the barracks, or you're friendly with them, and, you're, and who talked about the fact that you were going to lay your life on the line for freedoms that you didn't have?
1: Well, this was Uh, I think most of that happened after we graduated and the prospect uh, became apparent that we were going overseas and perhaps not come back. In the meanwhile, we had been getting uh, treatment that we considered unfair. For an example, after we graduated, uh, we we were sent to Selfish Field, Michigan. And we were officers and gentlemen. I was a lieutenant. That's where you graduate. But when we got ready to go to the officers' club, we were told that uh, we couldn't come in. And then that's when the bitterness and the hostility began to rear its ugly head. Some of the guys, especially the more northern guys, they said, you know this. This doesn't make sense. Here we are. We're going to go over uh, and and maybe crash, and die in one of these planes, and uh, you can't. You don't enjoy the privileges, the rights, and privileges that of your office, or uh, soldier in this country's army. So evidently, some of them decided that uh, they weren't going to do that. So uh, either accidentally or on purpose. I can only talk about my own class. We had 22 graduates. Airplanes began to crash on runway, on takeoffs, and various other things. People would would not go to the flight line to fly. And uh, I think we just began to be troublesome Uh, because they sent us from there, from Selfridge Field, they sent us down south where they knew how to handle black people. Sent us down to Walterboro, South Carolina, and uh, naturally we made friends. We had a lot of association in Detroit, nice northern town. And here, here the senator didn't tell us, just confined us to the to the base one one days that you can't leave, and put us on a train, and we didn't know where we were going. They it started, we knew we were going northward, and then finally the plane, uh, the train started to (laughs) turn southward, and then we, uh, for a day or so, we we rode and rode and rode, and finally the train stopped in the train yard, and we, it's almost like being prisoners, you know. Mm -hmm. We went to the they opened the door uh, of, the, of the cars and we started, we filed our plan, you know how you have stepped step down on the, that little stool up there. And we looked, and they had MPs all there was a kind of a, a rise. And they had guys with loaded rifles along this along this uh, rise. And I guess they thought we might start some trouble or something. But these guys had these rifles, carbines, I guess they were. And we were kind of herded to our barracks in Walterboro. Was the, uh,
0: the man, were you, did you have somebody in charge of you and was he white?
1: or? Uh, the one in charge of us at that time was black. That rode, on the, black t- rode
0: really, on the
1: train? Yeah. Yeah, Black.
0: he didn't know
1: anymore no he didn't know if he did he didn't tell us mm-hmm. so we were we were given you know barracks uh, on this air base this Walterboro air army air base and uh, and we still don't know you know well we knew that uh, they had, had some sort of ruckus in the officers club and this was their response to it uh, and we didn't like that So we were not uh, feeling very patriotic at that particular time. And then I remember the Sunday morning, some of the guys, no, Sunday afternoon, they wanted to go to the movies. So they went to the movies, all these guys crowded in there and they sat all over the theater because that's what they had been used to. And the the movie didn't start. And the guys, you know how you start clapping, and clapping. Then finally, a, a sergeant, a little corporal, got up and said, "The movie will start when the colored troops move to the left side of the theater." Well, that that did it. The guys got up and they were rushing to the barracks
0: Y'all to get their guns. Yeah, we're officers.
1: Yeah, we're officers. Yeah. And gentlemen,
0: and gentlemen,
1: <laughs> Rushed. To, they were going to shoot up the base. the base. Then you know a couple of the officers, the, the captains, some of the guys in charge, stood up and, and quieted, uh, quieted them down, and you know told them that wouldn't be the solution. And we need—we'll have to negotiate, talk to somebody about it. So everybody just left the theater and went back to the barracks. So, I was, I was one of the guys that <laughs> decided I was going to go and talk to the commandant. I went and another friend of mine went. And we volunteered. We'd go and work this thing out with the commandant. So, he saw us. He, he saw us, told his uh, adjutant, let us in. And uh, we told him what what had happened at the theater, that we were there. And some corporal told us the movie would start when uh, when the color troops moved to the uh, left side of the theater. And this guy was toying with us. He was just, you know, he was getting the big kick out of this. And here we are, two youngsters. I guess he must have been about 30, 35 years old. And and we up there standing ramrod stiff you know and trying to tell him that that we thought that was unfair and that uh we were uh officers in in the united states army and blah 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 and this guy just kind of reared back in his seat and then he he did what all southerners do he started calling us boy now you boys, uh, uh, you 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 boys don't don't like the the left side of the theater. Well, I tell you what, uh, would you you want the right side? <laughs> well, we said, sir, that would be that would be the same thing as the left side. Well, what about the front? We'll we'll rope off the front for y'all, you know. <laughs> After. He, toyed with us a while, and we saw we weren't getting anywhere. Uh, We saluted and did about face and and left. And so we just never uh, went back to the theater while we were there. But of course, they didn't care. That was fine as far as they were concerned. Meanwhile, we were expected to fly. They got a big P-47 Thunderbolt down there. we were to check out of that. And then the guys start started to call in, saying they were sick. Nobody showed up to fly, and, and then finally uh, they start wrecking the aircraft. You know, and all this is very bad. But uh, and we're not saying who did all this, but uh, they finally had to court martial some of the guys now, after they'd spent all the money on these guys train them uh, they had turned them completely off as far as uh, a terrible experience yeah uh, but I was I was going ahead I didn't feel I should kill myself you know for, for a point you know. uh, so one day I went out over the Atlantic with a friend of mine and I tell you show you who he was and we were to do our gunnery mission this guy.
0: Chuck Williams. Yeah, he's the vice president Airman.
1: of Shanley. Shenley Liquors. Uh-huh. And this is, this, he's done. Oh
0: when, my.
1: When he was a youngster. And this is me over here. This is you?
0: Yeah. Right here?
1: Right there. But anyway, we were in the same class. And Wonderful. We uh when we got through, we were to, we were to, one of us was to lower our seats into way down the cockpit so you couldn't see. The other was to give you instructions, and you were to fly by instruments. So he chose to give the instructions, mm-hmm. and I lowered my seat, and he would say, "Okay, make a 190 degree turn to the right, uh, make a 180 degree turn." You know, just to to practice instruments. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we did that for about a half an hour, and then after I jacked my seat up, I didn't know where I was, and I asked him, uh, You know, where are we? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so we're both out there somewhere over in North Carolina, lost. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then I've always been kind of independent since he was lost, and I felt that. Well, by judgment, I better use my own judgment since I'm sitting up in this plane. So he went off in one direction; I went off in another. But I should have stuck with him because even though he was lost, he wasn't as lost as I was. <laughs> so he got back to the base okay. So I, I kept wandering around and and uh, finding the gas, you know, start flashing red and. Uh, so I said, well, uh, I'm either gonna have to bail out of this plane or I'm gonna have to ride it down, one of the two. And so I had time to make a decision. I said, well, I can't guarantee the parachute. So I think I'll ride it down. So meanwhile, it's still flashing red. So I got went down about 1500 feet and started, about 1000 feet, start scouting fields. So uh, this was tobacco country down there. Mm. So I uh, I picked two fields, you know, just to hedge my bets. If I overshot one, I'd, I'd land another. Good thinking. Think. Good thinking. <laughs> That's the only way to survive in this world. Uh, so I left the wheels up, because you, you, you never want to put the wheels down in a strange place because uh, you could hit a hole and, and flip over. I did check, make sure there were no rocks, and no tree stumps, mm-hmm. but uh, I couldn't see you know, any more than oh, that. Gosh. So I went around, made a beautiful approach, left the wheels up, cut the engine, and glided on into this field. Glided with, the, with you know, did a belly landing. And then time I lowered, lower down in through this tobacco and you know i was and the the wings just clipping this tobacco you could see the tobacco fly. and i just cut a swath i must have cut a swath about a hundred hundred yards it was straight because i know it was straight because i looked back after after i got out of the plane it was straight as an arrow and i didn't cut the engine until the props start ticking into the saw into mm -hmm. the ground then i Turned all the switches off so the plane wouldn't catch on fire, catch fire, and uh, brought it on in, brought it on in for a good landing on its belly, and and just you know this is a this is way out in the country, and I'm sitting out there in this plane. I should have jumped out right quick, but I was so thankful to be on the ground, you know, all in one piece. I looked out and there was some little. Black kids in those days, I said, color kids. Well, I say black kids, looking out between the stalks of this uh, because tobacco, tobacco was high. And then here comes one of these, these whites, you know, the typical ones with the straw, the, and it didn't have any shirt, just had the, mm-hmm. the bib overalls Overall. on. <laughs> yeah, came out and he looked at this blade. He looked at me. And uh, he looked at his tobacco, and he used one one of these words that that uh, mostly black people use. You know, at least that's where it's said. You know, the the MF word. Mm-hmm. You know? God, that MF sure not or <laughs> something to that that effect. And uh, and meanwhile, the little kids were coming a little closer. They were coming closer to the plane. And then pretty soon you could see dust in the distance as cars were coming in from the little oh. town coming to see this plane
0: that traced
1: oh. oh in the tobacco bag.
0: Were
1: you, how would you, were you, Well, you, you know, I guess by that time, you know, you, after you fly, you know, after what, that's about <laughs> as dangerous a thing as you can do. You are pretty much mentally you're ready for this you know mm-hmm. for whatever happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, the rule was the rule was that you stayed with your plane, your downed aircraft until uh, relief uh, came. So there was a black guy that came and he was agricultural advisor or something and he offered to you know bring me some lunch. Have I, had I had lunch I said no so he took off in his car and brought me you know some of that good southern soul food type greens and, and corn on the cob and whatnot. so I'm now this is in congress he's <laughs> a black guy he has a crippled aircraft in the middle of North Carolina uh, eat, <laughs> eating. E- eating leaning mm-hmm. against the wing of the plane <laughs>
0: But that man was wonderful. He did the only thing he knew how to do for you, yeah. was to see that you were fit. Right.
1: Meanwhile, all of these other cars, trucks were coming, and he after, wanted you to
0: have a good meal before right, you died. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but they, see the thing is, they, these people down there, they were so seeing a black man flying an airplane was so alien to anything. Like that they'd space. ever seen mm-hmm. yeah it's like somebody dropped in from out of space well it would have been the same thing had there been a white you know in that particular area but it was even more so mm-hmm. when you see a black face under these goggles you know so they took me into town and uh, i had made a mistake tactical a mistake i put my and goggles on the man's counter you know, Course that seemed perfectly natural. And then I made a long distance call to Tuskegee and told them, no, I mean to uh, Waterboro. Told them where I, I didn't, they told me I was in such and such a county and uh, that that's where they could pick me up. So, but in the meanwhile, this big, big burly guy that owned this place, he didn't really like me be using his telephone and especially since I had uh, the temerity to put my goggles on his white counter, you know. He took, took those goggles and put them down in front of me, you know. So I was kind of glad to get out of there. So we waited around and finally a, a car came and, and the army car came and, and picked me up and took me back to uh, the airbase. And I said, well, I've wrecked one of Uncle Sam's plays. I know I'll be the next one that they're going to court-martial or say that uh, you won't have to go over.